Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gittler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number two in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, February the 11th. First, I'll be talking to Pete Seglinski, co-founder and CEO of the Seabid Project, which makes light work of some of the thousands of pieces of floating debris and plastics that enter Sydney's waterways. And I'll be talking to KPMG senior economist and partner, Sarah Hunter, analysing the RBA's latest move to keep interest rates on hold. But now, let's hear from Pete Siglinski. Peter, tell me about the Seabid Project. How does it work? Uh, so the, the way that the CBIN technology works is really easy, actually. If you can imagine a garbage bin crossed with a pool skimmer, and then instead of putting in a swimming pool, you put it in the water in a marina, a port, or a yacht club, or a lake, even a river. And, and that's how it is. It's, a, it's about a metre high, so about three feet high, two feet across. And uh, we literally skim the surface of the water 24-7, and uh, we're collecting microplastics, fuel, oil, plastic fibres, polystyrene balls on a uh, 24-7 basis. So we, we have a fleet of these CBN units in about 53 countries at the moment and uh, we're collecting about 3.6 tonnes per day and filtering something like 500 million litres of water per day as well. And so who pays for this? Um, at the moment, uh, we... Our business model is that we're selling the sea bins to the ports, marinas and yacht clubs. So predominantly it's private sales. So we, our clients will purchase a sea bin. They will then host it, run it and, and then get rid of the waste. But we're actually in a bit of a transitional period. So we're changing. We're actually we're, we're turning our business model on its head. The business model is to have state or federally funded solutions where we can essentially give to the marinas uh, to host for us because the stuff that's in the water, it doesn't come from the marinas and predominantly doesn't come from boats. It, it actually comes from upstream. And what it is, is mismanaged waste leakage from a city or a council or a county. It, it's all the stuff that they couldn't pick up or clean up. And, and so the kind of, yeah, transitioning the business model. Now, now, tell us about the technology. How was it developed? The technology was developed through a lot of pain and suffering and trial and error. <laughs> it was from my business partner, Andrew Turton. He's the inventor. 
and uh, he had the idea of if you have rubbish bins on land, why don't we put them in the water? Because there was enough waste to justify the amount, you know, to, to have a, a sea bin in the water. And so we teamed up. My background is a, a product designer and a boat builder. So I essentially met Andrew at a point where he wasn't quite sure how to commercialize it or how to scale it or even, you know, create like a bit of a business model around it. And so I jumped in and we, and we developed it together. You know, we, we have a focus on cleanup and prevention because our opinion is that technology is not going to save the world and, and technology is not the solution. We have to be smarter with, you know, with, with how, we, how we use plastic or anything. You know, we have to be more sustainable because the thinking is that if we were a bit smarter, we wouldn't have plastic in the water, we wouldn't have plastics in our oceans, and we wouldn't have a need for sea bins. So essentially our mission statement is to, to not have a need for sea bins. Okay, were you surprised by the amount of plastics and pollutants it was picking up? Yes and no. You know, we, we, when we design the sea bin, it, it's not big. It's not a perfect solution and it's not going to fix a problem. But what we realised was that you have to start somewhere and any, any difference that you can make has a, has a knock-on effect and it's scalable. And so we started off with one sea bin collecting like six kilos a day which is nothing in the bigger scheme of things. But, you know, with exponential scaling, we're getting 3.6 tonnes a day, which still in the bigger picture is nothing. But the, the prevention, the awareness, the, you know, you have to start somewhere. And so we, we feel that in the bigger picture, you know, it, it will really make an impact. And even with behavioural change and you know, visual communication of collecting stuff that's in the water, you know, how, how do we use that and scale that to turn off the tap to, to the plastics going to the ocean. I mean, that's still, still that, that's quite impressive how you're doing it. Quite impressive. <laughs> Thank you. It's a bit of a work in progress. You know, we never set out with this strategy. It was let's not be hypocrites and, you know, let, let's focus on the real solution as much as the cleanup. So let's, you know, we're, we're a for profit. We, we need to sell sea bins to pay the bills and I need, you know, we, we need money to sort of stay alive and support our families and pay the rent and, you know, put food on the table. So, you know, but let's do it properly. Let's be a, a business for good, a business with purpose. And, you know, we, we're in a position where we don't have a lot of cash, but we, we can make an effort with prevention and awareness. So, yeah, we, I don't know, it's a bit of a bit of a weird approach, but it's, you know, we, we felt it was the right thing to do. Now, you're a startup and you actually had a crowdfunding campaign, didn't you? You raised something like 1.7 million. Yeah, yeah. We've, you know, we, we, we got seed funded with a, with a crowdfunding campaign and um, we raised 360k in 2016. And we gave away hats and stickers and, and stuff like that. And, you know, we, we've been scaling pretty well and we've got, I think there's something like $5 million worth of product in the water. And... We, you know, we've we kind of been operating on the smell of an oily rag and we realised that to make some impact, we needed to bring on some investment, but we also realised that we are high risk. We're a, we're a startup, we, we're in a new industry, we're creating our own industry, so to speak, and anyone like that is classified as a high risk for an impact investor and, you know, for for traditional investors as well. And so we realized that, you know, our business is community driven. And so let's do another funding round. And instead of giving away hats and stickers, let's get people with a vested interest and let's give them equity. We set out with a strategy of that, 
if we have 1500 to 3000 investors, essentially that's our support base that, you know, can help us lobby an entire city. These are community investors basically, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 uh, the maximum investment that we got was $30,000 and then 20,000. So $50,000 was the max, the highest. And, and the average investment, well, we started off with a minimum of 250 bucks and, and we had 500 to $700 was kind of averaging. And we set it at that because we thought it was affordable. It wasn't going to break the bank. And if it, you know, if this, if this whole project goes belly up, you know, hopefully you're not going to lose the house. So yeah, we, we just wanted to make it affordable. And we found that there was a lot of people that have never invested anything in before, but they've always wanted to or found it interesting, but they had never found a business for good or a, a purpose, not just a financial return, but you know, they, they can help better the value of their grandchildren or, you know, the oceans or just be a part of a solution that's bigger, I guess. And it, it just really ticked a lot of boxes with a lot of people, which was lucky for us because we, we definitely needed that bump. It's a kind of business you need not only the support of the community, but you need the support of government agencies. And you need everyone behind it to actually get it working. Yeah, absolutely. And so my strategy was like, if I'm going to go and petition the city of Sydney, for example, I've only got one voice and that's me, you know, and, and, but if, if, if we get a hundred people or a thousand people or more of a community lobbying the same kind of agenda, that's when people are going to listen. You know, the decision makers need to start listening into the communities or who knows what happens next time voting comes around. So that, that was a very basic strategy was get more voices and, you know, lend more, I don't know, amplification to, our, to an agenda that everybody has a stake in, which is cleaner oceans and a cleaner environment. And of course, you're creating jobs along the way, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. We, uh, we're, as we transition our business model, you know, we're, we're focused on more of providing a, like a, a full services package, which is uh, job creation. So we've created a full-time envirotechnician position. Uh, we know that we need a part-time to go with that. And then we know that uh, we have scope to also employ up to 10 uh, casual positions per route, which is per, say, six to eight kilometres in a condensed city. And, uh, you know, we, we have a, a, a scaling document where we know that we can create up to 70 positions just in uh, New South Wales alone. Well, that's quite extraordinary. And, uh, Peter, it will be watching uh, Seabin with great interest. And thank you very much for your time. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everyone. If you want to check it out, you can visit our website at cvnproject.com. And now let's hear from KPMG senior economist and partner, Sarah Hunter. Okay. Well, Sarah, the RBA has kept rates on hold at 0.1%, but uh, Governor Lowe has indicated that the guidance of uh, there won't be any rate rises until 2024 looks to be dead and buried. Yes, I... I think that's uh, fair to say. It is. Uh, it's incredible how quickly, really, um, things have moved uh, from just before Christmas, when Governor Lowe, in his last speech, said he saw a rate rise in 2022 as uh, extraordinarily unlikely. I think were his precise words. And now he's saying it's uh, plausible, which is a, a big change in the adjectives there. I think it really reflects, though, uh, what's been happening. Uh, in the economy, the resilience to the Omicron wave and the continued underlying strength in the labour market, 
in economic activity and what that means for wages and prices. The RBA are, are moving with uh, the economic times and that's changing the guidance. Well, the RBA is indicating that unemployment is going to fall to, what, 3.75%? Yes, that's right, exactly, which is a decades, uh, multi-decades low. Uh, we certainly haven't seen that since the 1970s. So um, it's just a, it gives you a, a really strong indication of how well the economy is performing. And I, I think really crucially uh, that we've got these positive impulses coming through the economy from a number of different directions right now. Uh, we have households who uh, are you know, coming out of lockdown for some of us, but are generally got uh, big buffers of cash that they've built up over the last couple of years. So even if they you don't spend down that cash, you're able to spend from your current income that's coming in uh, and spend more than we were previously. We've obviously got easing restrictions as well, which is helping with that. Businesses looking to invest and uh, the intentions there are still really strong and the government as well uh, still pushing uh, through the system with infrastructure projects, maintenance and also increases in ongoing spending around healthcare, childcare, um, some of the other budget promises that we got last year. So if you put all of that together, the domestic environment is still very, very strong, uh, strong for jobs growth and, and that gives you that very low unemployment rate that they're expecting to see. Right, okay, okay. But uh, so when are you expecting the first rate rise? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Um, and it's interesting from the governor that this week, uh, and particularly in his speech to the press club, where he was sort of stressing um, the uncertainty, that it, the, t- the time they're going to take, the patience, and really you, know, you felt like he was really trying to talk the markets down from expecting a rate rise in the near term to his comments in the questions where he sort of said, well, yes, no, 2022 is, as you said, plausible. Um, I do think it's the second half of this year, um, possibly into the, sec- the last quarter of the year, so the December quarter. The reason I think that is because the, the RBA do still seem to want to see evidence of sustained inflation. So they're still very much flagging that uh, a lot of the inflation that we're seeing right now uh, is coming through from supply chain disruptions. There's some big moves in fuel prices, which are also in there. Uh, these are things that uh, domestically we don't have much control over and indeed no control at all when it comes to global fuel prices. What the RBA are looking for is sustained domestic pressures. And for them, that really comes through wages growth. Now, I I am optimistic on wages growth. I think it will pick up this year. But I think the board are going to want to wait and see um, a few prints of that wage price index to confirm that before they move. And that's why I think it's uh, towards the end of this year and um, not, not as early as the financial markets are currently expecting. And you're expecting one rate rise this year? Um. Yes, I mean, at the moment, yes, but the size of that rate rise is a good question. It could be a sort of correction to take us back to 0.25%. They may well decide to to go a little bit further than that. Uh, We'll have to wait and see. That's a question that's also come up in the context of uh, the Federal Reserve too. Would they go in 50 basis point moves rather than 25? Uh, Conditions there in the US are obviously very different to here in Australia, and so there's different uh, pushes on them. But uh, they're not restricted, certainly, to just a 15 basis point move. They could do more. Well, I mean, the US has got 7% inflation, which is quite extraordinary. And uh, I mean, I've read that uh, they're talking, there's talk there of uh, a, a risk of six rate rises. Yes, exactly. It, it is 
different. It's an interesting time uh, to be an economist because uh, there's a lot of similarities across countries and clearly some of the global trends I was talking about earlier are, are common to all. But there are some key differences as well uh, that mean different, you know, different outcomes for monetary policy settings. What's fascinating with the US is that unlike here, their labour market, while demand for workers is strong, their labour market in terms of supply hasn't recovered from that pre-pandemic uh, to pre-pandemic levels. The participation rate, so the proportion of people that are, are looking for a job or have a job, that's still uh, one and a half percentage points lower than it was uh, at the start of 2020. Uh, so what we've got in the US is a situation where demand is strong, lots of policy supports, as we have had here in Australia, but the labour supply has not recovered, so there's far fewer people available to work. And that's really come through in very strong wages growth. The, there, the pickup in wages growth has been much more marked, and that's come through into inflation. So the Fed are uh, looking at a different picture, and that's why it looks like they need to go uh, faster uh, to, to get things back under control, as it were, and to get the uh, policy settings right for the current environment. I mean, given the Fed is using a shock and awe approach over there, but uh, the RBA is unlikely to do that here. But uh, in terms of this current rate cycle, where do you see rates finishing up at? I noticed Westpac uh, was talking about 1.75%. Yeah, it's another really good question. And I I think if we're looking through into 23 um, and even into 2024, the full cycle. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what the timing of rate rises looks like and what the speed looks like. Uh, for me, what I can see sort of coming is that as we, especially as we go into 23, we'll have probably <laughs> rate lift off. And so that will start to dampen down uh, both consumer spending. So we'll all have to pay a bit more on our mortgages if they're variable rates. Uh, we'll also see a bit of an impact of that around business investment. But at the same time, we're also going to have some of those fiscal settings starting to become a little less supportive. Some of those lumpy infrastructure projects are going to start to be finished. And so that activity won't be there. Um, and some of the uh, positive uh, support for activity we're having from residential construction Construction, that will also start to hit a peak. And so in t- growth rate terms, uh, will start to ease. So we had uh, home builder and, and lots of pent up demand that's working its way through now, which is great, but it's, it is going to come to an end. So if I, if I look at all of that, I'm not surprised that the RBA are expecting GDP growth in 23 to moderate right back down to around 2%, which that sounds pretty low. And that I think will mean it will be um, a fairly modest cycle by historical standards in terms of uh, where uh, the cash rate tops out. I think maybe something in the region of 2%, so pretty similar to that Westpac number you mentioned, um, is what we're likely to be looking at. And how long we take to get there and what 23 looks like as some of these headwinds start to appear, uh, a conversation to be had in a few months' time, but it will be an interesting cycle for sure. Uh, one of the big issues, and I'm sure this would be very much on the RBA's mind, is that uh, Australia has one of the most, well, households are the most indebted in the world. Exactly. And that's another reason why I think that the cycle will be, they will want it to be relatively slow and steady. Uh, so they, the RBA are certainly not in the business of, of trying to really put the sh- break sharply on the economy. They 
definitely don't want to uh, generate a contraction output or, or a recession even, you know, uh, two quarters of contraction. So they're going to be monitoring that and looking at that. And, uh, and of course, we, you know, we do have relatively high levels of household debt. That does mean that as interest rates go up and people are looking at their mortgage payments, more to the mortgage means less spending through the rest of the economy. So they'll be very cognizant of that and, um, and certainly monitoring that. And, and as I said, that's a reason why I think that the cycle will be slow and steady. I don't expect uh, shock and awe, as you mentioned earlier, in terms of the profile for the cash rate. Right. OK. OK. And uh, I mean, there would be prospect, though, of more some mortgage defaults rising. Uh, potentially, I, I think um, inevitably at an individual level, there will always be people who, from their individual circumstances, uh, they will have to default or defer payments. You know, people lose their, their jobs, other life events happen. Um, you know, an interest rate rise might be the thing that pushes some individuals over the edge. But I would say that generally, um, looking at the data that's reported by APRA and the banks, uh, the loan impairment rates, so looking at the whole picture, they don't look stretched at the moment. Um, People, households do look as though they're in a fairly solid position. As I said earlier, many people have accrued excess savings. For a lot of people, they've accrued those into their mortgage offset accounts. So they do have that buffer. Uh, So I I don't expect that we'll see um, a sharp rise in defaults. And and I certainly don't expect um, the APRA or the banks have to respond with a a significant tightening of lending conditions uh, to protect themselves from from that. But for some people, it will be challenging. It it always is. Um, Individuals uh, have good times and bad, and and that's true now as it always has been. Uh, On the other hand, if uh, wages are rising and there's more income coming in, uh, people will be in a better position to uh, deal with the interest rate rises. Indeed, and, and that's actually the, the sort of the key point I think that the governor's trying to to stress uh, is that you know paying more in your mortgage is, is never fun. No one wants to have to do that. But uh, the key thing they're looking for is the fact that the recovery is well entrenched, that wages growth is picking up uh, uh, markedly from where uh, it is right now. And um, yeah, that there's a need to dampen activity so we don't overheat the economy. But for your average person, hopefully what this will mean is that, yes, they might have to pay a bit more and their mortgages rates start to rise, uh, but they will be taking home a little bit more from their job. And these things uh, sort of sit against one another. So overall, hopefully for individuals, uh, for most people, it, it won't be um, too much of a, a challenging period as we see rate rises come through. If they're gradual and your wages are going up, uh, it should be manageable for the majority of people. Which means that uh, the thing we have to watch out for is uh, the, uh, the size of the wage rises and uh, when they're coming and uh, to what extent they're coming. Absolutely, and, yes. And, and that that's really why I think um, in terms of that, the timing for the first rate rise, that it is a second half of 2022 move because the RBA will want to see uh, successive quarters of data. They'll want to see multiple data prints that tell them that wages growth has picked up. Uh, I do think that that's what we'll see. There's a few things going on there that will um, help that process. The the tightness of the labour market is particularly good for those people that work in the private sector that can perhaps either negotiate with their current employer or move jobs uh, to to get more pay. And we know that uh, that sort of churn rate of the labour market is very positively correlated with wages growth. And the more people that are moving jobs because they're getting paid more in their new 
new place that comes through in the wages data. Um, we've also, though, got um, some support coming through for wages growth from the public sector, the end of pay freezes for many people there. Uh, so that will start to lift through the public side. And as the wage bargaining agreements um, start to be renegotiated and kick through, they use CPI uh, inflation as their base. And so that pickup we've seen in CPI recently will get into uh, that wage index as well. So all of that is positive for wages growth. But as, the, uh, as Governor Lowe stressed in his speech, he wants to see it in the numbers uh, before he starts to move the cash rate. Okay, well, we'll be watching that with great interest. And Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, the historic collapse in Meta's shares this week has wiped 31 billion off Mark Zuckerberg's personal wealth, taking him down three places on Bloomberg's list of the world's richest people. He now stands in 10th place on the Bloomberg Billionaires Index, behind Oracle co-founder Larry Allison and just a few hundred million dollars above India's energy to tech entrepreneur Mukesh Ambani. Tesla CEO Elon Musk tops the list by a wide margin. Meta Platforms, the company formerly known as Facebook, had its worst day ever on the stock market on Thursday after reporting a rare profit decline and stagnant user numbers and delivering a vague assessment of the company's prospects as it invests heavily in augmented and virtual reality. And the full federal court has dismissed Facebook's claim that it neither conducts business nor collects personal information in Australia as divorced from reality in a withering judgment that approved a lawsuit over the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Facebook, now known as Meta, was trying to block a lawsuit by the Australian Information Commissioner claiming it breached the privacy of more than 300,000 Australian users via a personality test app called This Is Your Digital Life. Facebook argued it could not be sued under Australia's privacy laws because it did not carry out business or collect or hold personal information in Australia, a proposition that was firmly rejected on Monday in a 3 to nil decision. Justice Nye Perry found the installation, operation and removal of cookies, text files used to identify computer users on the devices of Australian users and the way people were logged in showed Facebook was carrying out business in Australia. And one of Australia's biggest banks produced property prices will fall around 10% in 2023 as looming interest rate hikes threaten to take the steam out of the market. Updating its forecast in a quarterly property survey, the National Australia Bank said it now expects the housing market to turn a corner soon after rates are hiked by the Reserve Bank. With our view on rate hikes coming forward, we now expect a turning point in property prices to occur in the second half of 2022, write NAB economists. That sees a flatter outcome in 2022 and a slightly larger fall in 2023. Overall, we see dwelling prices rising around 3% in 2022 before a decline of around 10% in 2023. While it might sound like property bargains on the horizon, NAB economists were careful to point out that any decline comes after what has been the most rapid increase in prices since the 1980s. And taxpayers have been paying more than $10,000 a month for George Christensen's e-material in the same period that he racked up an $85,000 Facebook advertising bill for issues including vaccine discrimination and a conspiracy theory about the unelected global elite. According to reports from the Independent Parliamentary Expenses Authority, Christensen claimed more than $50,000 for e-material over nine months in 2021, with the spend ramping up to an average of $11,000 a month from the middle of a year. Over the past 18 months, Christensen has spent $85,000 on Facebook ads. Government records show Christensen claimed $12,641 for e-material in the second quarter of last year, 
jumping to 33,500 in the third quarter as a controversial Queensland MP began ramping up his campaign against vaccine mandates. While the records do not indicate exactly how the money was spent, Facebook's records show Christensen spending significant sums on advertising on the platform in the same period. The expense reports are not yet available for the October December period, but Facebook's ad library shows Christensen spent a similar amount for the last quarter of the year, including an estimated $25,000 on a single ad that calls to end the vaccine discrimination. The ad is a demand for an end to all coercive measures by government and private corporations that force people to take the COVID-19 vaccine or else be denied services, rights or employment. According to Facebook, the ad ran from November to January and had an audience reach of more than 1 million people. He's also spent more than $10,000 on other anti-vaccine mandate advertisements, calling for an end to vaccine passes and passports, which he describes as medical apartheid and a path to a tyranny. Two separate ad campaigns costing up to 7500 that ran from August through December campaigned on the issue of globalist elites who Christensen claims are using the pandemic as an opportunity to fuse socialism and corporatism and embed it permanently into our economy and society. And the federal government is set to make COVID-19 tests tax deductible for Australian individuals and exempt from fringe benefits tax for businesses when they're purchased for work-related purposes. Initially, the change will see PCR and rapid antigen tests become tax deductible, but the government will include future medically approved tests in the scheme. The legislation will be in effect from 2021-22 FBT and income years and will be backdated to July 1st, 2021. Australians earning an income tax at 32.5% will receive a tax refund of about $6.50 for every pack of two RATs purchased for $20. Small businesses will reduce their FBT liability by about $20 for every dual pack of RATs purchased for $20 and provided to employees. And figures from the Clean Energy Regulator show more than 3,000 megawatts of small-scale solar capacity was added to grids around the country in the 12 months of December 31st, pipping the previous high of 2,964 megawatts in 2020. Combined, the capacity of the newly installed solar eclipsed the size of Australia's biggest power station, the 2,880 megawatt hearing coal-fired plant operated by Origin Energy in New South Wales. Also, the CER said there was a typical lag of up to 12 months in the report of new units, meaning the figure was likely to be even higher. Across Australia, more than 360,000 customers had solar panels installed on their roofs last year, in line with 2020, and more than double the number that went up in 2015. And a measure of Australian business conditions took a turn for the worse in January as a surge in coronavirus cases hit consumer spending, though firms were optimistic the hit would be short-lived. The National Australia Bank Business Survey showed its index of business conditions dropped five points to plus three in January, as sales halved to plus seven, and profitability slid eight points to plus two. Its measure of employment dipped three points to minus one. The index of confidence bounced to plus three, having dived 24 points to, to in December to minus 12. And the Morrison government has reversed the decision to freeze tens of millions of dollars in funding for the ABC ahead of the upcoming federal election. The move overhauls a contentious decision to impose an indexation freeze on ABC's annual funding in 2018, believed to be worth $84 million, made by former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. It will now deliver the public broadcast of $3.3 billion in funding over the next three years. Nevertheless, there have been $526 million in cuts to the ABC budget since 2014, with an ongoing reduction to base funding of $106 million per year by 2021-22. The ABC has told Senate estimates in reply to a question on notice.
Communications Mr. Paul Fletcher has also announced SBS will receive $953.7 million over three years, including an additional $37.5 million, which will support long-term sustainability. And the reopening of Australia's borders on February the 21st will not result in a flood of international tourists, but will be a slow rebuild that will take years, according to the industry. After growing speculation in recent days about a decision on the international border, tourism operators were rewarded on Monday when Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced that fully vaccinated travellers would be able to enter the country within two weeks. But Tourism and Transport Foreign Chief Executive Martin Osman warned it could take years, if ever, for Australia to return to pre-pandemic levels of visitors and expenditure. Ms Osman said it would also take time to build up aviation capacity, recommence marketing in key markets and build up staffing numbers in the sector, which have been decimated since the start of the pandemic. It would not be easy to try to win back foreign tourists, she said. When the borders open on February the 21st, Australia's two largest markets before COVID-19, China and New Zealand, will be missing as both are closed to the rest of the world. Australian Federation of Travel Agents Chief Executive Dean Long said it would take two to three months to build up a decent market. And Regional Express Airlines' 18-year monopoly on flights to and from Broken Hill is over, with Qantas Link emerging as competition for the carrier. According to the Qantas website, the second airline will be flying in and out of the Silver City starting in early April. Rex has been the only carrier operating in the region since 2004, with Horizon the last competitor. From April the 8th, the airline will operate two weekly return flights between Sydney and Broken Hill with its 50-seat Q300 aircraft. According to Qantas Link CEO John Gissing, the new plans will not only benefit locals, but bring tourists to far western New South Wales. And Victoria has been ranked as the highest taxing state with the largest public sector and the most red tape, making it one of the hardest places in the country to do business, a damning new report finds. More than half the national businesses polled said Victoria was the hardest state to do business in. Four out of five said they had difficulty accessing the labour and skills they needed. And only 7% said the Andrews government was doing a good job of reducing the cost of doing business. Victoria ranked well in some areas such as infrastructure. The government released a Deloitte report that put the value of major projects at $174.4 billion, as well as utilities, research and development and higher education. But the state's productivity levels have fallen badly over the past decade and the time and cost of setting up a business has risen to the highest of all states. The Victorian Chamber of Commerce and Industry Commission now scrutinised to conduct the latest research. The Chamber proposes an eight-step action plan to help Victoria recover its status as an economic powerhouse after being smashed by more than 260 days of stay-at-home restrictions over six pandemic lockdowns. Its recommendations include a business concierge to streamline interaction with the government, a root and branch review of the tax system, fast-tracking government approvals, injecting industry hires into the public service to overhaul the culture, a budget boost for Invest Victoria and Global Victoria amid falling exports and creating a business advisory group. And costs in home building will rise this year at above average rates as timber and metal prices keep increasing, posing the risks of delays to projects and adding to inflationary pressures in the wider economy, CoreLogic says. The report measures change in construction costs within the residential market. It covers and semi-detached single and two-storey homes. For the year to December, the building cost index rose 7.3%, its highest 12-monthly rate since March 2005, mainly due to the rising costs of structural timber. And it's a profit reporting season. Commonwealth Bank reported interim cash profit of $4.7 billion, up 23% on the previous first half. Mineral Resources report EBITDA of $156 million for the period, down 80% on the prior corresponding period. Bancor Company's revenue rose 1.9% to $900.1 million, while net profit slid 14.7% to $57.7 million. 
EBITDA dropped 8.5% to $133 million. Temple and Webster delivered record revenue of $235.4 million for the half year ending December 31st, up 46% on the year before. IVP Education posted total revenue of $397 million for the half, an increase of 47% compared with the same period in FY21. Earnings before interest and tax was $77.9 million, an increase of 61% compared with the same period last year. BWP Trust's revenue was largely flat on last year at $75.9 million in the first six months of the year, while net profit climbed 142% to $348.3 million, driven by a 235% increase in fair value of investment properties. Star Entertainment Group said it will post a net loss of up to $75 million due to lockdowns and the rapid spread of the Omicron variant in the first half of the financial year, dragging the casino giant into the red as it vows to repay $13 million for underpaying up to 2,200 workers. Mining technology company Index reported record half-year revenue of $167.8 million in the first half of the 2022 financial year, up 34.9% from the prior year. It also delivered record EBITDA of $51.5 million, up 55.1%, and record net profit after tax of $24.4 million, 80.8% higher than the previous year. Grantcore's average core net cash is forecast at $313 million in FY23. Argo Investments posted a near 92% surge in profit to $129 million for the six months to the end of December. Suncor Group's revenue slid 1.5%, to $7.23 billion. Profit took a bigger hit, falling 20.8% to $388 Shopping centre's Australasia Property Group's revenue climbed 25.2% to $172.8 million, while net profit firm 320.2% to $432.4 million, supported by a $349.4 million increase in the like-for-like fair value of investment properties. Funds from operations rose 30% to $94.3 million. Macquarie Group reported group capital surplus of $11.5 billion, while the bank's CT1 ratio was 12.2% in the three months ended December 1st. Megaport generated a profit after direct costs of $30.9 million, an increase of 69%, and Centurion Capital Group's operating profit after tax rose 73% to $58.7 million. And that's it for this week. And next week, I'll be talking to Brisbane-based prestige property buyers agent Lauren Moore, Lauren is an advocate for buyers who she felt were underrepresented in Brisbane. And despite buyers' agents being quite a new service in Queensland, she saw a gap in the market and decided to go for it. And I'll be talking to Comsec Chief Economist Craig James about what's ahead in the market for the week. In the meantime, catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 